With the Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. This is your captain speaking. Uh, we've got clear runway and the weather's fine, but we're just going to circle up here a while and uh, get lucky. No, no, nothing like that. It's just these cash prizes add up quick. So I suggest you sit back, keep your tray table upright, and start getting lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. It's now time for Centered on Health with Baptist Health on News Radio 840 WHAS. Now, here's Dr. Jeff Tuvlin. Well, good evening, everyone, and welcome to tonight's episode of Centered on Health with Baptist Health here on News Radio 840 WHAS. I'm your host, Dr. Jeff Tuvlin. And as always, we're joined from the studio from our producer, Mr. Jim Fenn, who is waiting to take your calls to talk to tonight's guest. Our phone number, if you decide to be part of the conversation, and we certainly hope that you do, is 502-571-8484. So call in, ask questions, be a part of the show. So October is Breast Cancer Awareness Month, and this is actually a part two of our series about breast cancer. Last week, we spoke with Uh, Dr. Sarah Couch, a general surgeon, about some surgical aspects of breast cancer. And I encourage you to go back and listen to that show on the iHeartRadio app. But awareness, breast cancer awareness, and the month of it means access, education, screening, and support. And I don't know that we could have a better guest on tonight who provides every one of those things for our community. So I want to welcome back Jill Crawford, who is a nurse navigator um, for the Baptist Hospital System for the Breast Cancer Network. And Jill um, has her nursing degree from IU Southeastern. She has been part of the team at Baptist Floyd since 2020. She's been in oncology for seven years, been on our show before, and I know that she's going to do an amazing job educating tonight about breast cancer awareness and mammography. So welcome back to the show, Jill. Thank you. Thank you so much for having me. Well, we're, we're thrilled to have you. You know, as we, we mentioned at the beginning, you know, this is Breast Cancer Awareness Month, and um, I don't think we can ever talk too much about the importance of screening for any of our healthcare issues, but certainly uh, breast cancer as one of them. So why don't you just start us off, p- paint the framework for us about, you know, we've been talking about breast cancer, made a lot of advancements, but how big of a problem is it? How common is breast cancer still? Um, Breast cancer is very common. Um, Every woman has at least a 12% chance at at minimum to develop breast cancer. Um, And about one in eight women um, do develop breast cancer. You know, I was going to I was going to say when you said the 12 percent, that's about one in eight. So, you know, most of us are probably going to have somebody in our lives that are touched by this. For sure. That's one of the first things my patients say whenever they do, you know, are diagnosed with breast cancers. They're like, so many people that I now know are realizing they're coming out of the woodworks and saying, I've had this, I've had this. And they kind of develop their own support group with it because women finally, you know, are there to open up and they didn't even realize how many people had already been touched by it. And you have a personal connection to the field of oncology. What made you choose to spend your your education and your career helping cancer patients? Um, yeah, my grandmother uh, is a breast cancer survivor. Um, so that kind of, I've always been, a, had an interest and a peak in oncology and um, 
for her to survive and have that history, it kind of helped put me towards wanting to show women who have gone through what she's gone through the best care and love. And, and uh, you know, later on, we're going to talk a little bit about the unique parts about what, what you're doing. But for, for our listeners, tell us about what average risk means for breast cancer. Who, who out there that's listening should be saying to themselves, you know, I'm at a certain age and, you know, without risk factors, which we'll talk about and family history, which we'll talk about, what should the average individual think about in terms of when they should start screening and what does screening look like for them? Sure. Um, The average age for screening is 40 years of age. Um, And then we recommend doing that yearly. And then um, it's, we see breast cancer most commonly occurs in women who are postmenopausal. So they've now ended their menses, they're into the menopausal symptoms. Um, So that's when we see the most women developing breast cancer. And so just for our listeners, you know, a lot of people feel like, okay, I don't have any symptoms. You know, and I I see this too with colon cancer screening in my Mm -hmm. field. I don't have any symptoms. I I shouldn't have to worry about this. But can you just point out what the difference between something that's a screening and something that's diagnostic? Sure. So the screening mammogram, we're taking a lot of pictures. We do now do 3D mammograms. Um, We are taking pictures, but then the diagnostic, we're taking more images. Um, So like how I explained it last time, um, you take an apple with a screening mammogram and maybe you're cutting it into eight slices. But then with the diagnostic mammogram, we're cutting it in like 200 slices. So if you have a worm in your screening mammogram, you may see it, but you're definitely going to see it when you slice it in several more slices with your diagnostic mammograms. Well, you know, I love that analogy because I think it really (laughs) helps people understand. I mean, uh, we're trying to find, you know, sometimes very small things and the more you slice something up, the more chance you'll see it. So, but for screening, it really is people with no symptoms and a diagnostic sometimes somebody might be concerned that they have found, felt something or found something or have a symptom. So um, we just want to encourage everybody that's listening that screening means no symptoms and we want you to be screened even if you think, you know, you're you're feeling feeling fine. So make sure that you you do that. Um, But if somebody were to have symptoms that might be concerning for breast cancer, what might some of those symptoms be? So there might be a small lump that is noted Um, There can be nipple discharge, um, a warm rash to the skin, maybe even a flaky rash around the nipple that just doesn't seem to be healing. Most of these are things that just don't seem to be going away um, or they're noticeably getting worse. There can be um, a size change of the breast that isn't normal because some women do have breast that aren't the same size, but if you notice that it's changing, um, so just changes to your breast that you didn't see before. And that's where like doing your breast exams are so important because you need to get to know your breast and you need to get to know if anything seems to be changing, if something's not going away and continues to be asymptomatic. Um, because 
that's going to kind of help you direct you to wanting to get that looked at. You know, I'm glad you brought up the, the self breast exam because I, I don't think we've talked about this before. And how, how important is that? How often should people be doing that? And where's the best way for them to learn the proper technique to do it? Is that something that their primary care would share, would teach them how to do is that is the gynecologist, the OBGYN, someone that would do that? Where, where should, should people with breasts learn to do the proper breast exam and how often should they do it? They should be able to learn how to do the breast self exams either by their primary care or their OBGYN. They should okay. all know how to do that. Women should be getting clinical breast exams at least once a year. Um, usually their primary care or OBGYN will see them do a breast exam possibly a pelvic exam, and then they're sending them for their mammogram. Um, so continue the clinical exams once a year, but then the self-breast exams, some people say it's not necessary, but I truly value it because you're getting to know your breasts. You should do it once a month, premenopausal, postmenopausal, any stage doing your breast exams, you're going to get to learn your breasts and if there are any changes that you notice. Um, for women who are premenopausal, doing it the week after your menses is best. Um, your breasts have then gone through their hormonal change with your menses and then afterwards you should, you're not gonna have as many lumps or swelling with your breasts that normally occur each month. So you're gonna get a better evaluation of any changes of your breast and then postmenopausal just picking a day once a month that you're always going to continue to do it um, and then just marking that and showing that you did it for that month and you mentioned a couple of times the premenopausal and the postmenopausal what is it about that is there something to how long you do have your your menses or how long your postmenopausal that changes the risk is it a hormonal thing that's driving that discussion? Um, well, for the self-breast exams, when I bring up the, the, the reason to do your self-breast exams at a certain time is just because our hormones do change our breast um, during premenopausal symptoms. But yes, having a longer exposure to estrogen, they are noticing that that could elevate your risk of developing breast cancer. All right, well, we're going to set the stage is set and we're going to start talking about how to get this done after we come back from the break. I want to let everybody know that you are listening to Centered on Health with Baptist Health here on News Radio 840 WHAS. Our phone number is 502-571-8484. If you'd like to call in and ask a question of tonight's guest, Jill Crawford, who is our nurse navigator in the Baptist Hospital System, and we will talk to you after the break. Welcome back, everyone, to Centered on Health with Baptist Health here on News Radio 840 WHAS. I'm your host, Dr. Jeff Tublin. Tonight, we're talking with Jill Crawford, our nurse navigator for the breast program here at Baptist Hospital. 
to this week, month, October is Breast Cancer Awareness Month. We're talking about the importance of screening. We're talking about mammograms and we're talking about patients um, who might be at risk. So going back to the whole concept of mammogram, I, I know it sounds simple, but tell us what a, what a mammogram is. What's the experience like for somebody who's getting one? How, how long does it take? To kind of talk us through what somebody might experience when they come in for their mammogram. Sure. So a mammogram is just an x-ray of the breast, pretty much. Um, and so you are placed in a machine that compresses the breast. So it kind of, we they kind of squeeze it in different directions from top to bottom and side to side and take images in both directions. Um, so that compression will hold for a few images. Um, so the testing only takes, I'm sure they schedule patients probably about 30 minutes, but it's the most time is taken by positioning the patient. Um, so okay. the actual compression doesn't last as long as positioning does. And um, when somebody is thinking about their risk factors, and we talked about screening, and we talked about average risk, and I know we'll touch a little bit on some genetics, but... There are some modifiable things. There are some non-modifiable things. So our genetics, we can't modify. But what are some things that, that people might be doing um, lifestyle-wise that might increase the risk of, of breast cancer? Sure. So smoking um, definitely increases the risk for breast cancer. Have alcohol use, um, gaining weight um, as an adult, and as especially postmenopausal, continuing to gain weight. Um, so just maintaining a healthy weight is good. Having some form of exercise, just even if it's just walking daily, just moving your body definitely helps decrease that chance. And another good reason in our community and in Kentucky to work on tobacco, which I know we still have a, a long way to go. Um, what does having any of those risk factors that you just mentioned change the age that you need to start screening or does that do even with those risk factors, do you still sort of stay in the average risk for screening purposes? You would still stay in the average risk for screening purposes for those risks. Now, if you, the way that we would change screening sooner um, would be if, mainly if your mom or someone in your family developed breast cancer at a younger age. So say your mother developed breast cancer at the age of 40, we usually say start 10 years sooner with your screenings. So okay. we would start you at 30 years of age um, just to try to catch that sooner if you were to develop, just because you're at a higher risk. So if somebody who's listening has a family member or first-degree relative that was diagnosed with breast cancer, they might start their screening earlier because of that alone? Yes. Okay. Um, and then when it comes to mammography, I think you mentioned this a little bit already, but what are the limitations of mammography? Like what, what's the what other options are there that might be better imaging than mammography and, and how do they choose who should get a mammography or a 3D or, or something else? Sure. 
So mammography is definitely the number one option we want to give to our patients for screening purposes. Um, and then at, if you are at a younger age and you develop symptoms, it may be that we do a breast MRI. Um, just because a younger woman's breast is quite dense and then an MRI is going to show us a little bit clearer of an image of the breast. Um, and there's also breast ultrasounds available as well that's usually done along with a diagnostic mammogram if we're looking at another view or if there's just a certain spot that we need to look at that we feel maybe you're too young for the mammogram or the MRI is you're not able to do those as well, we do have that ultrasound available. And you mentioned earlier about 3D mammography. Is that now the default or would, would a patient have to ask for a 3D mammogram or, or what's sort of the process to get that more detailed look? 3D mammograms are pretty much the standard. I think maybe I know just maybe a few hospitals in the area that don't do this, and it's more of our rural hospitals. Okay. Um, but majority do 3D screening mammograms now. And then what, um, what would you say to somebody that says, wow, okay, a mammogram every year, I'm trying to prevent cancer and now I'm doing radiation with a mammogram mm -hmm. every year. What? How do you respond to right. questions about that, that radiation exposure? The radiation exposure is so little that they feel that the risk, the benefit out, out does the risk, outweighs okay. the risk. Um, so your benefit is much greater than the risk of the small exposure that you're going to receive. Just because catching breast cancer early gives you a better chance of surviving and decreasing that risk of reoccurrence. The quicker we can catch it, the better treatment plan you're going to have, the least minimal treatment you're going to have. It just gives the better outlook all around. And then you, you, st you touched on something. You talked about an MRI. When would a patient be appropriate for an MRI of the breast as opposed to a 3D mammogram? The patients that we look at for an MRI are user, usually younger patients, um, more patients who have a dense breast tissue, and then also our high-risk patients. So we might have some patients who come in, they have a high family history, maybe they have a estrogen exposure. So if we do test high-risk scores, either with a Gale model or a Terracosic score analysis, and those are their generated score risk, and we plot in information into those risk factors, and it calculates a patient's risk of developing breast cancer. Like, it's just a general population, or just a, a guided population of it. So if a patient's risk factor is 20% or greater, then they qualify for having routine MRI screenings every six months, followed by a mammogram every six months. So they're getting a mammogram once a year and an MR once a year, six months apart. So we're kind of keeping them on a six-month rotation of some kind of imaging. 
And and from what I heard you just say, that's based on a determination of their their risk that you guys put into this calculation. Yes. So so maybe this is a good time for you to to tell us about the high risk program that you're running. What what does that mean, and and what why is it so unique? It's definitely unique because we are able to. A calculate a patient's risk so then we can follow that patient and give them constant education about their risk factors helping them reduce their risk factors if they if we're able to then we're also able to make sure and follow their imaging making sure we're getting them in sooner and with our high-risk program we're doing it for all cancer types not just even breast so oh, okay. a patient who may have a positive gene mutation that puts them at a higher risk of developing another type of cancer, we are also screening them for those types of cancers as well. So it's something that we put you in this plan and we're, con- and we're just monitoring you and keeping you in the loop and kind of just making sure that if you are at a high risk of developing a certain type of cancer, if you're going to develop it, we're trying to find it sooner. And how do patients get into that program? Are they filtered in through their GYNs or their primary care? Or is it, how are these patients identified in the first place to to then go into a high-risk program that you're offering? Ideally, our OBGYNs and our primary cares are going to be our number one people to catch that. Okay. Um, just because they're seeing these patients yearly, Frequently, they're getting their family histories and just being able to look at a patient's family history will help kind of raise that awareness of why don't we get you into a high-risk program? Have you ever thought about genetic testing or just maybe I feel like you need a little bit closer following or screening done. Um, And a lot of times they are put through our high-risk program because we're able to give them that risk and document that risk and counsel them through those risk factors as well. And are you feeling like you're seeing that our OBGYNs and our primary cares are, are recognizing this and sending them to you? Yes. Yeah. I feel like our largest population come from our OBGYNs. Um, but we are noticing that our primary cares are starting to notice and see the benefit as well. Wonderful. Well, we're going to take another short break right here. I want to remind everyone listening that you are listening to Centered on Health with Baptist Health here on News Radio 840 WHAS. Our phone number 502-571-8484. If you'd like to call in and ask a question about breast cancer screening or monitoring, our guest, Jill Crawford. And um, this is Breast Cancer Awareness Month. So we want to get the word out there. We want to make sure everybody is taking care of their health. I'm your host, Dr. Jeff Sullivan, and we'll talk to you after the break. Welcome back to Centered on Health with Baptist Health. Here on News Radio 840 WHAS. I'm your host, Dr. Jeff Tubman, and we're talking tonight with Jill Crawford about October being Breast Cancer Awareness Month, mammography, screening, 
And we're going to talk a little bit about family history and genetics. So it's not too late to call in and ask a question for tonight's guest, 502-571-8484, if you want to be a part of the conversation. So, Jill, one of the things people asked me when we I told them we were going to be discussing this was they, they said, how where does it cross over from having a family history to somebody who might need to be concerned that they have some kind of genetic cause for their um, breast cancer and that that needs to be evaluated? Sure. So family history is definitely one of the main factors that we use to test for a genetic mutation just because we're seeing that trend of a family of family members having a, some type of cancer. It doesn't even have to be breast cancer for us to pique our interest. It can be any kind of cancer. Um, and then where it kind of transitions from a family history to a type of cancer. So triple negative breast cancer is an automatic, we're doing genet our genetic testing for you. Triple negative breast cancer is a rarer breast cancer, and it's the one that is mostly associated with having like a BRCA mutation. So we are, when you come in, you have triple negative breast cancer, we're doing genetic testing automatically. Okay, so you there was a lot of terms out there that I know our listeners have heard being discussed in different contexts, and I want to dive a little deeper into kind of what what you're talking about what you mean so let's start with BRCA1 and BRCA2 which I know people have heard about and what what does that mean and is it better to be positive for the BRCA1 or negative or what what's the BRCA part before we get into the triple negative part BRCA is one of our first and highest to develop our highest known, most known, I guess, uh, genetic mutation for developing breast cancer. It puts you at, if you have it, uh, probably around the 50% chance of developing breast cancer in your lifetime. That's pretty high, yeah. Right. So we, it is better to be negative for BRCA mutation. Um, for any genetic mutation, it's better to be negative for. There are several other genetic mutations that occur with breast cancer. It's just BRCA is the one that you are at a higher level level for developing breast cancer with. So is BRCA a gene that everybody has? And if you have a mutation, then you're at risk? Yes. So okay. I want to say don't quote me on this, but I'm pretty sure okay. what I've read is the BRCA mutation is a repair mechanism. Um, and so having a mutation in that allows you to not have that repair mechanism in developing healthy cells. So that's just what I've, I think I've remembered reading, yeah. but um, it, it is definitely the highest one that we definitely monitor for. So the mutation is what puts you at significant risk and there are things that trigger you in the clinical scenario or in the pathology of a breast cancer to maybe think about that being a root cause. Um, yeah. Now in colon cancer, which is, you know, an area that I know more about, colon cancers can be 
what we call sporadic or they could be genetic. But a lot of times in our field, colon cancer isn't an isolated event. It puts patients at risk for other cancers. Is that true with breast cancer and these genetic mutations as well? Yes, um, genetic mutations, there aren't very many that are just only associated with one cancer. There, each mutation has several cancers that you are at risk for. Some you just are at more of a higher risk for developing. Um, so like BRCA, you have the chance, depending on which BRCA you have. So each BRCA, BRCA1 or BRCA2, have different mutations um, or risk developed with those. So there's prostate cancer for the men. There's also melanoma with one, pancreatic. So those mutations have those risks. So each mutation has a set of risk for it, and they just kind of put those in a percentage of what, how, what likelihood you would be to develop that cancer. You didn't realize when you were going into this field that you were going to be a geneticist and an immunologist all at the same time, did you? <laughs> I mean, these, these fields are just exploding with these understanding. So just to reframe yeah. for, for those listening, the, the, the BRCA is the gene and it's the mutation that increases risk. Now, when we talk about what you mentioned before, which is triple negative, um, tell us that's, those are receptors that are found in the cancer itself. Is that right? Yes. And so what, what so, are the, what's the triple mean and, and what does it mean to have them or not have them? And what, what's the importance of knowing triple negative? Sure. So each breast cancer is checked for what's called an estrogen receptor, a progesterone receptor, and then what is also called HER2, new. Um, so the estrogen receptor and progesterone receptor are, you know, the women have those type of hormones in their body and that's what's causing those to grow if they're positive. Um, they're, so those receptors, if they're positive, then that estrogen in your body or progesterone in your body is hitting those receptors and feeding this, the cancer, as we call it. It's allowing it to grow. It's giving it a pathway to grow, um, as well as the HER2. It's a protein that we you know, look for as well. And um, if that's positive, those HER2 receptors are just pulling in that HER2 and allowing that cancer to grow. So when you are negative on all three of those, which would be triple negative, um, you, your cancer is kind of growing on its own. There's no real receptor that we can block for you at that time, um, which is why we consider it to be a little bit more aggressive is because usually the best way to treat triple negative is with chemotherapy. Okay, so what I'm hearing, so I understand what you're saying. So you're saying that when these breast cancers do express these receptors, there are things that we know are feeding it so we can come up with ways to block it. Whereas if all three of them are negative, it's harder to treat because you don't have any of these things to block. Right. Yes. Okay. And that's when the more, that's why it's considered more aggressive and, and may need the kinds of chemo as opposed to just sort of these, like an estrogen receptor blocker or a progesterone receptor blocker. 
Right. Okay. Um, oh, that's very helpful. Okay. So that's why those are considered to be more aggressive. And then what, what are the types of things that you would you what would like an estrogen receptor blocker be or a progesterone receptor blocker be? Are those the ones we we hear about? Or are those the ones we're more familiar with? What are those treatments? Yeah, those are some of our most common types of treatment for breast cancer. Um, and it's usually after you've finished your breast cancer treatment through surgery and radiation. At the end of all of that, we're like, okay, we're going to put you on a tablet. And it's usually either there's tamoxifen or there's also a class called aromatase inhibitors. And those block the estrogen from feeding the cancer. So um, we give those to kind of help either stop your body from producing the estrogen or to block any kind of estrogen from hitting those receptors. Well, we are going to take our final break here. And when we come back, we're going to learn how your role as a nurse navigator helps us understand all of these things as we're going through these treatments. So I can't wait for you to share that with our listeners. I want to remind everybody you're listening to Centered on Health with Baptist Health here on News Radio 840 WHAS. If you missed any of tonight's show or want to hear all of this excellent information in its entirety, download the iHeartRadio app. It is free, it's easy to use, and it gives you access to tonight's show and all of our previous shows. We'll be right back. Welcome back to Centered on Health with Baptist Health here on News Radio 840 WHAS. I'm your host, Dr. Jeff Tumlin, and we're talking tonight with Jill Crawford, one of our breast nurse navigators at Baptist Hospital, about mammography, screening, genetics, and the role of the nurse navigator. So, Jill, welcome back. And I want to say that I am thankful for two things. I am thankful that we don't have to take a test on any of that genetic and markers that we just talked about, but I'm also <laughs> more thankful that we have you because you are part of a program that I think is so unique and it is so important for our patients and for our community. So tell us about the Nurse Navigator program and what role you provide in that that program. All right. Thank you so much for that. Um, so as, <laughs> as a Nurse Navigator, I am... For one of the first people you'll meet after you are initially diagnosed with breast cancer, um, I help kind of facilitate the appointments, making sure they're done quickly and on time, just kind of moving you through the process quickly and being a point contact for our patients. I see patients with our surgeon's office. I see them with our medical oncology and our radiation oncology offices as well. And then I just have a really great team that backs me of people who are willing to, uh, that I can communicate with and things get done quickly just as well. They're like, sure, you need this. All right, let's get them on. Let's get them going. So that's really where I can thrive is knowing who my great team is. I couldn't do it alone anyway. So um, that is really great. And I love that about the facility I work with is everyone is willing to help to whatever is needed for the patient. Um, and then so, also part of yeah, go ahead. Oh, go ahead. <laughs> no, you please continue. Uh, I was just going to say also part of my is role. Is there something else I um, 
is helping with facilitating survivorship. So after a woman is done with her treatments, kind of working through on what to expect going forward and then also community outreaches and education and doing these these functions where I can help spread the word of prevention and screenings and trying to bring awareness as to how we need to catch things early. You know, I want to get back to, to the, the concept of the nurse navigator in a second, but something you just said really interests me. So tell me, what is your experience about people who go through this and the treatment and then they're done and then they're they're kind of just supposed to go back into the into the world is there a period of adjustment that that happens and what role do you help them with in that transition back to their lives oh for sure there's such a change and every woman hits it at a different time um some we some women will mourn their process at the very beginning um there's some women who are just like I'm going to fight through this, bring it at me, I'm going to go. And then after they're done with their treatment and they're not seeing us quite as often, they kind of have time to sit and process this and be like, what did I just go through? So everyone mourns their process. They all do it at a different time. Every woman goes through different emotions. And usually it's at the end of their treatment. It hits them and then they're like, well, what am I supposed to do? I went through all this treatment. Now I have this fear of reoccurrence going on. I don't know what else to do. My family thinks I should just come back and be my normal self. Whereas they're mad at their bodies. They're mad at everything they they're mourning such a process it's a true mourning process for them um and so we kind of try to help facilitate that by trying to have as many resources available to them support groups and just women who have gone through this to go through it with to help them through it because as much as i can sit and tell you I'm sorry, I know I don't know what you're going through, but I want to be here for you. I can't help them as much as someone who has truly gone through this. So we try to facilitate a lot of that. Well, I feel like you just pulled the curtain back on something that everybody should really be thinking about, which is, you know, the support that people need, not only through the process of getting better, but once they are better, what life looks like and how to live with, with all of these emotions and concerns about recurrence and things that you just, you just brought up. So thank you for, for doing that for our community. But how many of their, how many of these breast cancer navigators are there and and how many patients do you help navigate at one time? It's such a hard, so I'm the only one at Floyd. There are, I think, two at Louisville. There's one at each facility of Baptist, for sure, Um, at least one. There's two in several different places. I think Lexington has a couple as well, two or three as well. Um, But so we do have several of them. And I'm sorry, what was the second part of your question? (laughs) Like how many how many patients are you helping oh. at, any one, at any one given time? Yes. Sorry. That's so okay. the thing with patients at one time is patients come 
ebb and flow. Um, some days, some weeks we're super busy with patients and some weeks we're not. And then I'm also following patients in different phases of their survivorship. So I follow probably about 150 patients through a year. Um, but at different times, I may be busier than I am with other patients. I have more acute patients than I have my more patients who just need to get back into something as far as like surgery or things like that. So I have different stages of patients that I follow. Well, Jill, thank you. Thank you. And thank you. And I know our community well, thanks thank everything that you're doing. We love having you on the show. I hope everybody is listening. October is Breast Cancer Awareness Month. I want to thank our producer, Mr. Jim Fenn, for keeping us on track. Thank our guest, Jill Crawford. And I want to thank our listeners for listening to the show. Next week, we'll be talking with Jen Hignan, who is a nurse practitioner in GI, near dear to my heart. We'll see you next week. This program is for informational purposes only and should not be relied upon as medical advice. The content of this program is not intended to be a substitute for professional medical advice, diagnosis, or treatment. This show is not designed to replace a physician's medical assessment and medical judgment. Always seek the advice of your physician with any questions or concerns you may have related to your personal health or regarding specific medical conditions. To find a Baptist Health provider, please visit BaptistHealth.com. With Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. This is your captain speaking. Uh, We've got clear runway and the weather's fine, but we're just going to circle up here a while and uh, get lucky. No, no, nothing like that. It's just these cash prizes add up quick. So I suggest you sit back, keep your tray table upright, and start getting lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details.